Please turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll read the text for this night, and we'll have a word of prayer. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and look at verse 10. Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you for your people who came out to hear it. I pray that they'll be blessed tonight by what they hear from your word. And Lord, I do pray you'll give me accuracy and clarity as I try to speak what your word has said. And Lord, I pray that it would hit our ears and it would hit our hearts and it would change the way we think about this world to change the way we think about our circumstances, change the way we think about the week ahead of us in a way that's glorifying to you, in a way where we appreciate the great salvation that you've given us as your people. We do pray that we rely on your spirit and that he would get all the credit for everything that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we started to answer a question of why Jesus became lower than the angels. We've talked over the last couple weeks about why Jesus is better than the angels. But then why would he become lower than the angels? So we started looking at that last week, and we looked at three things. We looked at number one, we looked at the, the, the design of creation. That God originally designed man to rule over creation, to bear his image, and ultimately to point to his glory. But then number two, we examined the demise of creation. Sin has corrupted everything around us, and we have failed to fulfill God's original design for creation. And then we said, uh, asked the question, can we reverse the curse? And we asked with Bob the Builder, can we fix it? No, we can't. We can't reverse the curse ourselves. We continue to bring more death into this world with our sin. And then we saw number three, the death of Christ. That reverses the curse. Because Christ is our new representative. It's taken that place that where Adam brought death, Christ brought life. And everyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ has life. So that's what we looked at last week and why Jesus became lower than the angels. So tonight we're going to continue to answer that same question 
and you look at it in more detail about this question of why Jesus took an inferior position. So in verses 10 through 18, we're going to see specifically what it took or what it takes to bring corrupt sinners like us to glory. We're going to see in these verses what it took Christ to bring us to glory. We're going to look at this first and that it required sovereign initiative. Sovereign initiative in verse 10. Look back at verse 10. It says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So verse 10 is a transition all the way from verse 9, which we looked at last week. And now it's going to act kind of like a thesis statement or a proposition for the verses that are going to follow in this new paragraph. So let's look at some very basic observations from this verse. Who's the subject of the sentence in verse 10? It's God the Father. And the text says that it was fitting for him to do something. And what was that? What was it fitting for him to do? To perfect the God the Son through suffering. That's what was fitting for him to do. Now, what does perfect mean in relation to Christ? Does that mean Christ was deficient? Does that mean Christ was lacking morally at all? Does it mean that he was deficient in any way? It means the completion of his work, that he had to have the full experience of living a life on this planet, identifying with us. Now, how is God the Son described? What's the title it gives him? It says he's the author of salvation. The author of salvation. Now, my brother-in-law, Justin, and I, some of you met Justin, we decided we, want to, we wanted to uh, hack away a trail to a fishing hole once where there's really no access around this lake, so we hiked a ways out. We tried to get our way into it, but there was brush about this tall and for about 25 feet. So we got machetes, and we were trying to hack our way through. We got a few feet in, and we realized this isn't going to get us anywhere. We were trying to be pioneers to try to start a new fishing hole to get to, but we weren't very good pioneers. But Christ here is the author of salvation. He's the leader. He's the pioneer of our redemption. He paved the way for our salvation, and he made it possible. So he starts our salvation, as we see in Hebrews. He starts it, and as we continue to study this book, he continues our salvation. And as we continue to further study, he finishes our salvation. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, how is God the Father described in this verse? Look at the verse again. How is God the Father described? says all things are for him and all things happen through him he's absolutely sovereign over everything that happens now why is this description of God's sovereignty here in this context why is it there the verse could say this it could say it was fitting for him and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings it makes sense right he could have left that phrase out but why is that phrase there is it just to give a nice description about God there's a very particular reason. We are talking about what's required to save sinners like you and me. But we have to ask the question, is God required to do anything? Does God, does God have to meet any requirements for us? Is he obligated to us in any way? He's not. There's nothing outside of himself that caused him to send his son. Nothing outside of himself. It was his love. It was his decree it was his wisdom, and it was for his glory. Salvation happens through him and for him. He faced no external pressure. He had no obligations to meet. 
Now, we understand obligations. Think about tomorrow. Most of us have to go back to work, right? Now, you have the choice of not going to work, don't you? Maybe you take, maybe you take the day off tomorrow. And you say, wow, that was nice. And then Tuesday, I'm going to take, take the day off again. So this is a nice little vacation. But is that obligation eventually going to catch up with you? Maybe catch up with you sooner than you think. Maybe by Monday morning when your boss is wondering where you are. We understand obligations where we suffer for not doing what we are called to do. Now, is God bound in that same way? God's not bound by anyone or anything to do anything for anyone. And it's until we embrace that truth that we're going to have a low view of God, we're going to have a low view of his salvation, a low view of forgiveness. Because he remains completely glorious with or without us. And this is why it's such an amazing truth that God has chosen to save us. He wasn't obligated to do, he wasn't required, but he's still chosen out of his love to do this for us. So consider this in your evangelism too. Is there an easy way to present the gospel where people say, wow, that sounds great. Is there a way to present the gospel like that? People do it, don't they? And that's where you get all the numbers and all the hands raised. But they're leaving something out, and what is it? They're leaving out God's true character. They're leaving out his sovereignty. They're, re they're leaving out the idea that you have to take up your cross and follow him and submit to his lordship. He is sovereign. But why suffering? Why was suffering the most fitting way to bring us to glory? Could, could God have found a different way to bring us to glory? Could he have found a different way? This is a really good question. Was he obligated to do it this way? Could he have just spoken our salvation into existence? Hmm. The rest of the passage is going to answer that question for us. So we'll see, secondly, solidarity with the Son. To bring corrupt sinners to glory, we had to have solidarity with Christ. We had to have solidarity with God the Son. So look back at 11 through 14, verses 11 through 14. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Verse 12, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Who's heard the word solidarity lately? Use it at the workplace. I know Dave used it last week on the, on, the, uh, on the job. But most of us aren't using this word, are we? This text is going to describe what this word means and why it's such an important word, why it's such a weighty word. Let's see what the text says. First, it means that Jesus is unashamed to identify with us. Jesus is unashamed to be identified with us, sinners. Kids can be really ruthless sometimes. We've all experienced this one time or another where you might be hanging out with some kids, think, wow, this is great, hanging out with some cool kids, and it lasts for a couple weeks. And then some cooler kids come along, and they leave your friendship, and they go to hang out with the new kids. That ever happened to you? Maybe you've done that to somebody else. People are ashamed to be identified with you. This is an absolutely amazing truth that this creator, this Christ, who's been described as this amazing being, the one who created us, the one we owe all, all our allegiance to, he's not ashamed to be called our brother. 
And notice that the author gives us proof for this. The one who sanctifies is Christ. Those who are sanctified are believers, those people who are set apart in holiness. And what do they both have in common? What do they both have in common? They're both from God the Father. Now, does that mean Christ was a created being? Not for a second. He's already established that he is not a created being. In fact, he is the creator. It means that God the Father sent the Son into the world in time, space, and history in order to identify with his people. And notice he gives further proof from this in Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, about the Christ. There's a quote from Psalm 22. And what's significant about Psalm 22, if you know your Old Testament? That psalm is about Christ. It's where the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you can count all my bones. They divide up my garments. All those prophecies about the crucifixion. That's what psalmist is from. And there you have the statement, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. Right from that same psalm. And then he quotes Isaiah 8, where it's also looking forward to Christ. I will put my trust in him. Behold, I am the children whom God has given me. So he's proved the point here that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. But I think our problem is not believing the proof. I think our problem is losing interest in it, isn't it? We lose interest in this idea that Jesus is unashamed of us. We kind of tend to go along our merry way and forget about how amazing this truth is. And here's how it shows up. Something really dangerous happens when you start to lose interest. You start to become ashamed of his people. Ever heard anyone say, well, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church? Heard that before, right? Or, yeah, I just spent some time with Jesus on Sunday with the TV, but, man, the churches have really burned me. You hear people talk that way? People talk like that all the time. But if Jesus is willing to call us brothers, what right do we have to disassociate with his people? We don't have that right. And then something else starts to happen. When we start thinking this way, something even more dangerous happens. Who do we become ashamed of eventually? We become ashamed of Christ himself. You can't say you love Jesus and hate the people that he died to save. That's a contradiction. Just like if you say, well, I love so-and-so, but I can't stand his wife. They're both, they're bound together. They are together. So it's impossible to truly appreciate the work of Christ. It's truly, it's impossible to appreciate his, his love for us if you're unwilling to recognize it in people around you. Christ's work in believers around you. Was he ashamed to call Peter his brother? After he denied him three times, he still wasn't ashamed. Was he ashamed to call Paul his brother after he tried to destroy his church? Jesus was still not ashamed. Is he ashamed to be called our brother? He said, I've sinned so many times, and I keep on sinning. I keep on repeating the same sin. What, at what point does Jesus stop being unashamed to call you his brother? Does he run out? Does that run out? It never runs out. This is good news. So are you ashamed of his people? Are you ashamed of him? So this meant another step in his humility. Jesus was willing to become one of us, not just willing to identify with us. He was willing to do that, but he's so willing that he became one of us. This mention of the word children in Isaiah 8, it prompts a comment. It says, since the children share in flesh and blood, he took the same. He partook of flesh and blood himself. Now, why go through this trouble? Why would Jesus have to go through this trouble? Couldn't there be an easier way than suffering? 
This is going to bring us to the purpose of his solidarity with us, his identity with us. Our third point is that bringing corrupt sinners to glory requires salvation from death. See this in the second half of verse 14 through 16. Look at verse 14. The second half says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also likewise partook of the same. And there's two reasons for this, of why he identified with us in this way. In order that one, through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And look at the second reason. In order that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. A twofold reason for him to identify with us. So notice Christ's objective of victory over death. His objective victory over death. In Christ, we are no longer under the power of sin. It might feel like we are sometimes, but in Christ, we are no longer under its power. Who is the one who had the power of death, according to this verse? Satan, the devil. How did Christ make him powerless? What does the text say? Through death. It was his death in our place that accomplished it. Now, last week we covered this. We talked about how Adam brought sin into the world, but Christ came to conquer sin. He came to conquer death. This is an objective reality. When I say objective, what do I mean? I mean, it's the case whether we feel about it or not. However we feel about it, it's the truth. Whether you recognize it or not, it's the truth. It's objective. It's a fact. It's concrete. It's something that happened. It's a finished work. But does Satan still threaten us? Does Satan still threaten? Does he feel like he's powerful to us? Is that how it still feels? You bet it still feels that way. But Jesus also took care of that. There is a subjective victory over death in verse 15. Who does verse 15 say Christ sets free? Who set free in verse 15? Slaves. People who are subject to slavery all their lives. Now, if they're slaves, they have to have a master. Who's their master in this verse? Who's the master? In particular, the fear of death is the tyrant. The fear of death is the master, and it's a wicked master. Now, where does this fear often show itself? It shows itself when you evangelize, for sure. Many Christians, well, who would just raise their hand? Who would say you're afraid to evangelize, at least at times? I'll raise my hand, too. It can be a fearful thing, can't it? We are afraid that when you talk to people about the gospel that they'll ask you tough questions that you can't answer, or maybe they'll trap you in a logical fallacy and then walk away from you and think, wow, the Christians are just stupid people, just like I thought. We're afraid of that. But it's not about us winning an argument, is it? It's not about that. And I can guarantee you that their fear is far greater than your fear. And why do I say that? How can I say that? It's because deep down inside of them, we know as a biblical fact that they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They are doing that. We know that deep down, they do have a guilty conscience. And you know that when you talk to people. You start asking questions. Deep down, they are guilty in their soul. And they know it. And deep down, they're terrified of death. They are terrified of it. They fear death. They don't know what's going to happen. They might talk about how they're just going to go into oblivion or nothing's really going to happen, but they ultimately they are terrified of death. The fear of death is their master. Now, no other worldview, no other religion helps people escape from this. 
there's always a fear of whether or not I'm going to perform or do enough to be forgiven to whatever deity or whatever thing I'm accountable to. There's always a fear that they're not going to measure up. The gospel is the only way for this fear of death to be conquered. It's the only way for us to have absolute security that we know what's going to happen to us when we die. The only thing that gives us true liberty from death, true freedom. You also see this kind of fear of death when you go to funerals. You know the difference? Have you, I'm sure all of us have been to the funerals, and you've both been to funerals where of unbelievers with unbelieving families, and then you've been to funerals with believers and believing families, true? And then it may be a combination of all kinds of those things. And you see a difference, don't you? You see a difference when you go to those funerals. It's probably, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. Uh, we were talking about hockey this afternoon, a guy we played hockey with. Um, he was about 17 at the time, real handsome guy, a lovable guy. Everyone liked to be around him. He was a great hockey player. Uh, one night, he was driving way too fast on Barris Avenue, and he ran into a pole or something, and he died instantly. That was one of the most, that was one of the saddest funerals I've ever been to, and one of the longest funerals I've ever been to. People were giving testimony after testimony of what this guy meant to them, but none of them, not a single one of them, had any hope of where this guy was. They had nice thoughts about him and assumed that maybe he's in heaven, but it was no real hope, no concrete assurance of where he was. This is the fear of death. Everyone there said, wow, this is a guy, he's strong, he's handsome, and he's dead at 17. What about me? Do I have any hope? None of them could answer the question. You also see this in your personal spiritual battles. The strategy of fear is one of Satan's greatest strategies for us. If he can get us with the fear of death or fear of anything, he's got us. And what does it take for Satan to do that? Does he have to get into our system and hang out with us every single day in order to convince us to be afraid? All he has to do is whisper, and then he can leave, and our minds will do the rest of the job. And if he can do that, he knows he's got us where he wants us. If we can be living in fear as believers, fearing death, fearing all kinds of different things. His goal is to erode your confidence in Christ. If he can do that, he's done his job. Even as a believer, your confidence in Christ can be eroded over time. It's something that needs to be strengthened. No, we don't lose our salvation, but your confidence in your salvation and what Christ has done can be eroded over time. Satan tries to suggest he has power over us, but does he? That's the question we have to answer. Does he, as believers, does Satan have power over us? He does not. In Christ, we are no longer under the fear of death. This is Christ's subjective victory over death. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? No victory for the grave. If in you're in Christ, death has no sting. The grave has no power. Now, we need to talk about our faith in Christ's victory over death. Verse 16. There's a curious phrase, and I'm going to show you why it's here. For whom has he accomplished this victory? Was it for angels? It wasn't for angels, it says in verse 16. In his humility, he became lower than the angels. Why did he become lower than the angels? To get to us, to get to mankind. It says, for surely he does not give help to angels. But who does he give help to? What does it say in the text? Who does he give help to? The descendants of Abraham. Just the Jews, right? Just people who are Israeli born? All right, I'm glad we got that settled. Let's move on to the next point. No, it's not just that. 
If you see this term seed of Abraham, it's used in scripture all, all throughout the Bible. It's used in three different ways. I want to describe them to you, so just listen in real quick. Three different ways that this term seed of Abraham is used in the Bible. And which way, the context will make clear. There are passages in the Old and New Testaments where this term seed of Abraham refers to simply the natural descendants of, of Israel, where they're naturally born Israelites. And the context makes those clear. The problem is some people go with it even to those and say, yep, that's not really talking about that. That's talking about the future church. But no, if you look in context, talking about literal descendants of, of Abraham. Ethnically, I'm talking about. But number two, how else is it used in the Bible? Galatians 3.16, it's re referred to, referring to who? To Christ. Christ being the seed of Abraham. And the context makes that very clear. And the third way it's used in the Bible is spiritual. It's everyone who has faith in Christ. And you see these throughout the Bible. You see that in Galatians 3.29. You don't have to turn there right now. But it says, if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants. You're heirs according to promise. So could, could that include us? I hope it does. And in fact, I know it does. And that's good news for us Gentiles, isn't it? That we are heirs of this promise. And spiritually, we can be, we can be descendants of Abraham. And no longer strangers to the covenants of the promise. We have salvation in Christ. Now, we will conclude tonight on a very comforting note. In verses 17 through 18, we're going to be introduced to what I believe is the most encouraging description of Christ in all the Bible. It's a role that we're going to see in much greater detail all throughout the rest of Hebrews. And in these verses, it's going to be the very first time it's mentioned in the book of Hebrews. And what, what's that role? What's that job we're going to talk about that Christ has that's so comforting? What I believe is the most comforting job Christ has in all the Bible. What's that office? High priest. He's our great high priest. Fourthly and finally, bringing us corrupt sinners to glory requires security in our high priest. Security in our great high priest. Look at verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is security in our great high priest. We've already seen in this passage that for him to bring us to salvation, he had to become one of us. But very specifically, why did he have to do this? Why did Christ have to become one of us? Why did he have to come down to this earth and live among us? We need a mediator. This is the only way for us to have access to God. And we, don't, we can't just use any mediator, can we? Could any old human being step on the scene and say, I'll do it. I'll do the job. I'll die on the cross. I'll bear the sins of the world. It can only be one person, and that one person is Jesus of Nazareth. Why? He's fully God, fully man, and no sin. He's the perfect sacrifice. This is our mediator. He's the only one qualified for this role. And this is a message of great comfort and great security to us. Why security? Security because of his mercy. Look over a couple pages at chapter 5 in verse 2. Hebrews 5, 2. It mentions a really important quality for any earthly high priest to have. Back from the Old Testament, the Levitical high priest had to meet this very important qualification. It says that earthly high priests 
can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Feel ignorant or misguided sometimes? Yeah, that's all of us. Why can he do this? Since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. He has the same struggles, the same weaknesses, the same frailties. So when he sees other people with the same problems, being misguided, ignorant, struggling through situations, he can help. He says, yeah, I know what you're going through. That's an earthly high priest. But what about Jesus as our great high priest? That's why we call him our great high priest. He's the better high priest because he's not just any old man. He's the God man. Jesus, because of what he's done, because he's not ashamed to identify with us, he became one of us. Because of all that, he's never surprised by how weak we are. He's never surprised by how sinful our hearts are because he lived among us. Jesus doesn't ever fly off the handle with us. You ever feel like Jesus is flying off the handle with you because you've sinned that same sin over and over again? If you felt that way, it's not true. He doesn't fly off the handle with us. He doesn't get impatient with us. He doesn't yell at us. Jesus never runs out of patience with us. He's gentle and patient and merciful with us at all times. He knows exactly what we're made of. And he knows that we're not nearly as tough as we think we are. He's our perfect high priest. You know the Christmas song says, He knows our need to our weaknesses, no stranger. That's our great high priest. And we never have to worry about his mercy running out. Does Christ's mercy run out of, for us? It's never ending. We also have security because of his faithfulness. Jesus is a completely and totally reliable high priest. He had a job to do. He completed it, and it continued, the effects continue and continue and continue and never run out. What about us? What about the earthly high priest? And what about us and our responsibilities? You remember the disciples, Jesus before when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he told his disciples, hey, watch and pray here. He comes back and says, they were sleeping. He says, you guys weren't even able to pray for even an hour? He goes back a second time, comes back, still sleeping. You think the third time you come back, then they're praying, right? No, they're still sleeping. And who's ever had that problem of praying and falling asleep? Does Jesus fall asleep on the job? Does Jesus fall asleep in his way he takes care of us? He never falls asleep. He never stops praying for us. He never stops interceding for us. He never takes a break from caring for us. He's faithful. And he's our high priest for all eternity. We also have security because of his sacrifice. Christ's incarnation, becoming flesh, becoming one of us, his mercy, his faithfulness qualified him to complete the work which lies at the very heart of any high priest. This is the work that's at the heart of the priesthood. And what is that work? What is at the heart of this work? Sacrifice, propitiation for our sin. Now, most people are willing to admit that God's a forgiving God, aren't they? If you talk to people, they are. God's, of course he's a forgiving God. Is he anything else? No. Now, we went to the, several of us went to the USF campus this past week, and it's surprising. Well, it's not surprising, but people say, well, I don't really believe in God, but he is forgiving. See the irony in that? Like, I don't really believe he exists, but if he does, I know he's forgiving, at least. But if God's only attribute were mercy, forgiveness would be very simple, wouldn't it? Very simple thing. You just say, okay, I sinned. Okay, God, I'm sorry. And he forgives you. It'd be a very simple thing, right? But is forgiveness, is mercy God's only attribute? Could God be summed up with that one word? No, he has a great complex of attributes. 
all kinds of attributes bound up together. He's also, also wrathful. He's also angry over our sin. Kids ask tough questions. On Friday night, Philip is starting to ask more and more questions, and he's reeled them off back-to-back, rapid-fire. He said uh, he was talking about uh, you know temper and being impatient, that kind of thing. I'm not sure what he was getting at exactly. Maybe I was impatient with him that day. I'm not sure. But he said, what is selfish? I was like, okay, well, it's only when you care about yourself. This is an easy one. He said, what is mean? It's when you're not nice to other people. He said, what's, what's angry? I guess when you're mad and impatient with people. And then he trapped me. I did not see his coming at all. He said, is God angry? <laughs> I was like, uh, <laughs> I wasn't ready for that, Philip. God is the only one who's perfectly justifiable in his anger. Can we be angry over just causes? Yeah, we can. We can have just anger. We can be angry and not sin. But it's really hard, isn't it? Our definition of anger is not quite God's definition of anger because he's completely pure in all of his anger and all of his wrath and perfectly justified in his anger toward our sin. There is only one thing that could satisfy God's wrath hanging over our sin. And what is it? Only one thing. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And the only perfect sacrifice was the death of Jesus Christ. This appeased God's wrath. It satisfied God's wrath for everyone who puts his faith in Christ for salvation. The one who doesn't believe has been judged already. We also have security because of his experience. It says at the very end of the passage, for since he himself was tempted and that which he has suffered, because of that he's also able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus was tempted Jesus was tempted. He faced trials. He suffered more than you or I ever will. You know what this cures us from? If you looked up in the International Dictionary of Spiritual Diseases, which doesn't exist, but if it did exist, the pity party syndrome would be there in the P section. Okay, Pity party syndrome. And this pity party usually follows a progression. Something happens. Something bad happens, and you start feeling bad for yourself. And I'm including myself in this list. That's how I knew how to write it down. Feel bad for yourself. Then you stop thinking about the needs of other people, what's going on in other people's lives. And then number three, you stop serving people. Number four, what do you do after that? Isolate yourself. Recluse. And then five, you get irritated when people start sharing God's word with you. Start, people start telling you God's word's the answer to your problems. You think, well, it hasn't been solution up to number step number four here you get angry at the people because of that and then after that you begin to think that no one's ever experienced anything quite like you've experienced you think you're going through the worst thing that mankind has ever faced and in the end of all this what do you think when come when someone talks about the sacrifice of christ the suffering of christ on your behalf you think no it's not as bad as what i'm going through and that's actually what we think we don't ever admit that out loud but deep down we think that what we're going through is the hardest thing known to man. But Jesus is so merciful to us. He's so patient with us that he actually comes to us in our pity party, and he doesn't party with us, and he doesn't let us stay there. He pulls us out of it. He brings us back to reality. He slaps us if, we need, if he needs to. And he says, if you're tempted, I've been tempted more. If you're going through trials, I've gone through infinitely more difficult trials. If you're suffering... I've suffered far more. 
But does he use his, his suffering, his, his trials, does he use that as an opportunity to gloat over us? We do this all the time. We say, well, I had such and such a sickness, and I broke my leg twice in the same spot, and then I was on the bed for nine months, and then it happened again for another nine months, and then that's it. And the next person comes and says, well, you don't want to happen to me. That was, whoa, it top that. And we do this with our suffering, don't we? We compare, we one-up each other. But does Christ do that with his suffering? Not for a second. How does he use his suffering? He doesn't use his suffering the way we do. He uses his suffering to do what? To help us, to come to us in our time of need, to aid us, to show us mercy, say, yes, I do know what you're going through, and I'm here to help you. I'm your great high priest. He's experienced all these things to help us, so we have security in that experience of his. And if that doesn't encourage you, I have nothing else to offer. And the Bible has nothing else to offer for you. This should be the most encouraging truth for you this week. So what did it take for God to bring many sons to glory? It took sovereign initiative. He started the work from his own will. He wasn't obligated to do it, but he did it because he loved us and chose to save us. It took solidarity with the son. He identified with us. He became one of us. It took salvation from death. We brought death into the world, but Christ came and conquered death. And we no longer have to live in fear of death. We, never, we don't have to live in fear of anything for that matter. And it also took security in our high priest. So it required Jesus going from glory to glory. To bring us to glory. So take encouragement from the cost of our redemption. Take encouragement from the fact that you have a high priest in heaven who has paid for your sins. He's paid for all of your sins. And he knows exactly what you're going through. And he takes great pleasure in helping you. Jesus came from glory to bring us 